When I was traveling a lot to different countries in the world, I would get an email regarding the appropriate customs and manners in the country or the region I was visiting. One time as I was preparing for a trip to Saudi Arabia, I received an email that said customs and manners for Saudi Arabia. I opened it up, a lot of really good tips, but there is one section that talked about the appropriate table manners while in Saudi Arabia. Let me read a few of the things that were in that email regarding etiquette. The first one, before meals, as the food is being served, it's appropriate for guests to say satane, which basically is translated as bon appetit. The spoon is the most important utensil, so you must, 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 must always keep it on your right side of your plate. The most honored position at a table is in the center. So as a guest, I would make sure I would sit somewhere else. Do not eat or drink until the oldest man has been served. And the last one, and this is one that I had the most difficulty with, is never use your left hand while eating. I'm a left-hander, and I really struggled like five thumbs trying to use a fork on the right side. A lot of rules, but I always found it was really important when visiting another country to understand the customs and to support the culture as best as I could. As we continue our series at the table, we are going to diverge just for this week from the book of Luke, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 10 on a topic entitled Manners at the Table. You know, there's a portion of scripture in Acts 10 that a lot of people get confused. I've seen it even misunderstood by Adventists. It opens with a Gentile soldier named Cornelius, and he's told by God in a vision to send for Peter. Meanwhile, you know, Peter is another town, the city of Joppa. He's hungry, he's tired, he goes up to the roof, and as food is being prepared, he falls asleep and has a vision from God, and he dreams of animals and food. Starting with verse 11, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down by earth on its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So we're going to explore this question, was the vision that Peter had about clean and unclean animals and food and what to eat? We're going to see as we put the entire chapter together, the answer is no. You know, we've talked about this. We see images in the Bible with food, tables. It's usually not about the food. It's about the people. And we're going to explore the kinds of people that God wants us at the table with us. Now, remember, Peter was Jewish. And at the beginning, Christians were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament Messiah prophecies regarding the Messiah. Peter thought in terms of Christ coming for the Jews. It was hard for him to think beyond this and think of something new. And that is what this vision is about. 
God challenges this way of thinking and encourages Peter to change. And he does so in a vision where Peter sees all these different kinds of animals. Peter knew what the list of animals, unclean and clean, were. You know, if we go to Leviticus chapter 11, we see, see things like the camel, the rabbit, the pig, all unclean. The vulture, the eagle, the owl, the hawk, the bat, unclean. Insects are unclean, except locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers. The weasel, the rat, the lizard, all unclean. And Peter knew these particular rules. Peter refuses to eat what is before him, instead saying that he would never eat anything unclean. And then the Almighty reminds him that God makes the rules and he's going to eat what's on his plate. In his vision, Peter is told, don't call anything unclean that God has made clean. In the same way that Peter tried to reject certain types of foods in his vision, Peter, and dare I say all of us, do we often reject certain types of people? This leads me to a very important word. The word is right here, it's inclusiveness. What does that word mean to you? Have you thought about this? You know, if I were to open up Webster's Dictionary, it would say the quality of including many different types of people and treating them all fairly and equally. But I'll add to that definition today. This is not just an important word for us. I'm going to say that it is an essential part of who we are as Christians. In this year, the year 2022, it is one of the most important words for us as a Christian in this era in history, and I would say anyone living in the United States of America right now. You know, we are living in an age, especially in this country, that's this thing called Christian nationalism is shaping our country, our churches, and our definitions of what Christianity it is. It is one of the most dangerous things that I have seen in my life. Christian nationalism sells itself as a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity and American civic life. Christian nationalism contends that America has been and always should be Christian from top to bottom in our identity, our interpretation of history, values, symbols, even policies. But where I struggle with this is that the Christian and Christian nationalism is more about identity and exclusiveness than religion. Where is the inclusiveness? It also carries these assumptions around nativism, white supremacy, authoritarianism, and militarism. In reality, as I look at the table that God has prepared, it is the opposite of what I see with Christ in the Bible. You know, we've seen the news. We've seen the recent events that are happening. Hard to even think about and talk about sometimes. We've seen the migrants sent to Martha's Vineyard. And I struggle with this. We see a group that is so pro-life and cheap treat other life as political pawns is disturbing to me. What we see is incompatible with the gospel. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, as I was working and praying over this message, I ran across this tweet from David Cassidy that kind of summarized my feelings as we were praying about this. The final miracle Jesus performed was healing the ear of a man wounded by a sword-wielding disciple trying to defend Jesus. Jesus still heals people wounded by deluded disciples who think that Jesus needs defending and people need to be attacked. Love one another. So we're seeing all these things happening in the news and all these emotions are, are, are filling up in all of us one way or the other. And we think, well, it's happening on the news. It's happening everywhere. You know, just a couple of years ago, I was teaching a, a Sabbath school class and we were talking a lot about some things and we were discussing what something that Canada did a few years ago with the Syrian refugee crisis. And what they did is they established a program called the Group of Five. And what the Group of Five is, is five nationalists, Canadian citizens, form together and a Group of Five adopts a refugee family in Syria. And that paves the way to ultimately leading to immigration. And so as we're talking about this, and there's all these pictures that you can see with this reunion in the airport, tears flowing. If you're to read faces, you see joy, relief, excitement. And then just kind of compare all the other things that we're seeing. I always ask myself, what would Jesus do? So I'm telling this story and kind of looking at what Canada is doing. It's just one example. And after I was done, I had someone pull me aside and tell me how delusional I was. And I'll kind of paraphrase it, but basically how dumb I was. How many times do we make distinctions about the people God wants to let into our lives? So as we continue on with Peter in verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? So Peter is up on the roof trying to figure out and understand this vision when he receives this invitation to visit a Gentile named Cornelius. And now he begins to understand. The light bulb is coming on. This vision isn't about food. It's about people. The point as we explore this vision of Peter's is that the first Christians who are Jews should welcome everyone into the fellowship of Christianity, even the Gentiles. Think about this. If we were to somehow able to transport this keen church back in time, we're next door in the city of Joppa to Peter, you realize that we're all Gentiles as well. So this is really, really good news that is for all of us. 
So there's two table manners as I think about this. The first one is accept your guests as they are. You know, there's a, a classic book. It's entitled To Kill a Mockingbird. And it tells the story through the eyes of a young girl named Scout. One evening, one of her classmates comes to dinner. Table, his name was Walter Cunningham. Suddenly, Walter asks if there are any molasses in the house. The father of the house, his name is Atticus Finch, goes and gets syrup. The book says that Walter poured syrup on all his vegetables and his meat with a generous hand. He would have poured it into his milk glass had Scout not asked, what are you doing, Walter? Walter immediately put his hands down on his lap and ducked his head. Atticus shook his head at Scout, and Scout said, well, he's gone and drowned his dinner in syrup. He's poured it over everything. And it was then that someone motioned Scout to go into the kitchen. And she was stern. She looked at Scout and said, there's some people who don't eat exactly like us, but you aren't called to contradict them at the table. That boy is your company, and if he wants to eat up the tablecloth, you're going to let him. That's when the young girl starts to protest, saying he's not company, he's just a Cunningham, which is, to paraphrase, he's different. Hush your mouth. Doesn't matter who they are. Anybody that sets foot in this house is your company. When we have company at the dinner table, it's good manners to accept them. You know, we have a lot of ministries here in the Keene Church that focus on community service and support. Last week, we did the food bank. We've got water ministries that we go to the homeless. We've got great stuff. A lot of different things that really are a blessing to get involved with and serve our community. And we have a strategy. Sometimes people refer to it as disinterested benevolence. When we go in the water ministry and we have ice water that we go down to the homeless district, we are doing it simply because we love and respect everyone. There's no strings attached. And I find that opens more doors in terms of genuine connection than trying to immediately start showing them the great controversy. You know, a few weeks ago, we were down there at uh, the homeless district, and there were these books of great controversy scattered throughout the homeless district. Now, I'm praying that it finds into the right hands and the right eyes, but just giving someone a bottle of water because you simply love them opens up wonderful doors of communications that we all have been humbled in serving there. As we step back and look at where we are, you know, our country is becoming more and more multicultural, and this is a wonderful thing, my friends. Diversity enriches our ability to do what God has called us to do. We need to respect and accept everyone that comes to the table. When we don't, we are not following Christ's model. You know, Jesus did it properly. He went into the homes of the publicans and the sinners and ate with them. Those that were considered super righteous were the ones that were condemning him. And what did Jesus say? Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The good news is for everyone, and everyone is welcome to the table. You know, I always say a few years ago, but it's getting close to being 10 years ago, I was doing some work in Tokyo, large skyscraper. I forgot what floor I was on, but there was a cafeteria somewhere in that building. And so we broke for lunch, and I had some colleagues around with me. And as a staple, white rice is served with almost every meal. 
And I'll never forget this because I'm not a huge fan of white rice by itself. I need to add a little bit of sauce or vegetables or something on it. And so I had nonchalantly grabbed two little packages of soy sauce. And I sat down, I opened up the soy sauce packages and was kind of pouring it on my rice. Everyone's eyes were just as big as saucers looking at what I was doing. I had no idea that this was actually a faux pas. But they were so kind, they didn't say anything. We continued on the conversations. And later on, they said, well, this is just not a normal thing that we do in Japan. Now, I really wish those emails that I was getting would have warned me about the faux pas of white rice and soy sauce. But I, to this day, remember how they treated me with such respect and kindness and then talked to me about the appropriateness of soy sauce. So the second table manner is simply this. Don't hog the food. You know, have you ever had an experience eating with someone else with bad table manners? And I remember going once a week in high school to a pizza place, and I had a friend that would always go and grab all the, you know, the first few slices of pizza very quickly. Well, come to find out, he had 10 other brothers and sisters, and he said, well, if I didn't grab it quickly at home, there wouldn't be any for me. Now, I firmly believe that everyone in this world is hungry. Everyone is looking for something. Why do I exist? What is my purpose in life? Some people don't know what they are hungry for, and they try to satisfy their hunger in a million different ways, but they're still hungry. Christ alone satisfies. I believe everyone is hungry for what the good news of what Jesus did for each one of us. So let's not be like our high school, my high school friend and not hog the food. There is plenty to go around. And this is something that Peter is learning. We learn that Peter was called upon to feed Cornelius, not by hogging the food, the spiritual teachings, but sharing and loving. And you know what amazes me more than anything else in this story? Is that all of this was happening to Peter. Peter, hard-headed, stubborn Peter. He struggled with it but he realized this was the right thing to do. And what a dramatic change it was, but it was an important and necessary change. So there I am using that word change again. And change is something I've spent a lot of time in past lives working with companies on how do you handle change? It is a fundamental thing that is absolutely important to understand. You know, there are examples in the corporate world have you heard of the name Kodak, Blackberry, Blockbuster? At one point in time, these were industry leaders, and now they are irrelevant or bankrupt. But what is interesting to me is that change is almost always driven out of some sort of crisis. And sometimes it is too late. So as we think about change, Change is important for us as a church, as a community, and a body of believers to embrace. Now, the trick is, is how do you balance change while keeping true to your core principles? Uh, and there's a lot of stories I can share with that, but it is certainly possible. You know, I'm always excited when Southwestern Adventist University is back in session. Every student here at the Keene Church enriches the Keene Church in wonderful and powerful ways. 
And each one of you mean a tremendous amount much to us. You know, last week we had the food bank and I woke up in the morning and I was a little nervous because I saw the volunteer signups and we were really hurting. And when I saw the response from here in Elevate to come and support the food bank, it was truly humbling. Every person, and I said this before we started, every person was an answer to my prayer. The change that you bring to our church is a blessing for us. And I'll be honest, summers are a little boring without you. Your presence is a good change. But there are difficult changes that we have to deal with as well. And I know that change can be hard. I read this story that I thought ties this point together really well around change, reluctance to change, and stubbornness that can lead to disastrous consequences. We all have heard of the name Chuck Yeager. He was a famous test pilot in the 1940s, and he was flying over the Sierras, and he had a friend that was living by the lake, and he decided he's going to buzz the house. So he takes the plane down to 150 feet and actually flips it over and does a roll and flies upside down at 150 feet. But as he did it, he felt the aileron lock up. It was a hairy moment, he said, flying about 150 feet off the ground, inverted upside down. A lesser pilot might have panicked with disastrous consequences, but Jaeger let off the G's, pushed up the nose, and sure enough, the aileron unlocked. So he flew back up to 15,000 feet and tried the same maneuver, and the same thing happened. The aileron locked again. Every time he rolled, the problem recurred. Jaeger knew that three or four pilots had also died under similar circumstances. So when he landed the plane, he went and talked to some people and got the investigators involved. And as they started to dig into trying to understand what was the fatal flaw of the saber, they found that a bolt in the aileron cylinder was installed upside down. Eventually, the culprit was found in a North American plant. He was an older man who had ignored the instructions about how to insert the bolt because, by golly, he knew that bolts should be placed in head first, not bottom up. In a sad commentary, Jaeger says, nobody ever told the man how many pilots he had killed. I worry about how much of the work of God we have killed because of our manners at the table but not being able to accept love and not being able to think in new ways. You know what the mission statement is of the Keene Church? You see it on the videos, living God's love. We do this by loving, connecting, and sharing. Like Peter, we tend to be stubborn, obstinate, and downright hard-headed when it comes to change. But we can and we will break this mold. We, like Peter, can change and embrace change and accept all the people that God brings to our life and to our table. We can welcome them to the table where there is room for everyone. And as Elevate says, there's always room for one more.